Hey guys, what you're about to listen to is a podcast I did with my friend Justin on the Ramry Island Massacre. Yes, that crazy story about a ton of Japanese soldiers being eaten alive by saltwater crocodiles. Now before we jump into it, I just want to let you know, over on my Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, you can find exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is me answering the question as to why did the Japanese army perform so many atrocities during World War II? It's a rather gruesome and in-depth one. Go check it out. Well, hello there. This is Craig from the Pacific War Channel, and I'm joined here by an old friend, Justin, how are you? What's up, everybody? Long time no see. And as part of this kind of ongoing new format, I am uh, actually going to be doing a little bit of a, a story, a myth, if you were, that was uh, an episode that was on my YouTube channel about the Ramry Island Massacre. It's pretty famous on YouTube. Uh, there's a lot of silly videos about it. And I'd say probably every video on YouTube about it is either completely wrong or overlooks a lot of the facts. We'll just say that much. Hey, if it's on YouTube, it has to be true, Craig. That, that That's the first thing we're going to establish, right? The internet never lies. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of an ongoing theme on my channel because I did another piece on um, the so-called Korean soldier who fought for the Japanese, then the Red Army, and the, uh, the Wehrmacht during World War II. And that one also is a myth that uh, was another podcast another day. But for this one, for those who are new to the channel of the format, I'm, this isn't a scripted episode or anything, but I'm going to go through the story of what was the Ramry Island Massacre. And Justin here is kind of playing the part of the general audience. He can pitch in some questions, throw a few jokes in, because we are drinking tonight. And uh, yeah, when are we not drinking? Exactly. That's uh, Yeah, for those of you who know us, we like to goof around with this stuff a little bit. I do learn quite a lot because this is not my area of expertise. But for the record, I did watch a few of those YouTube episodes to get an idea of what the Ramry massacre was or was supposed to be. And uh, it's a pretty interesting story. So I, I can definitely see how it's something that might have got far-fetched with time. You know, the, the, good old, uh, the good old fish story of how big it was. And every time you tell it, the fish gets two inches bigger. Or, you know. Actually, you know, since we have you here and you are a general audience member, what, what, what do you know of this event just off the bat so from what i understand and again this is from watching a bunch of different youtube episodes so don't quote me but uh near the end of the war there was a u.s campaign which of course i don't remember the name of mm -hmm. to take back a bunch of the smaller islands around that area mm -hmm. and use them as naval outposts or bases you know to kind of finish off the remaining uh axis forces and ramry island where the japanese had set up a pretty big outpost was one of them but basically, with time and with superior weaponry, the U.S. forces were very much outmanning and outgunning the Japanese forces, who had to continue retreating onto the island, and even had to withdraw from one of their main bases on the island because, for fear of getting surrounded. And their only option to try and uh, rendezvous with the other Japanese soldiers was for one of the main Japanese commanders to take roughly a thousand troops and venture through essentially a giant swampy jungle. And while wandering through the swampy jungle, they faced all kinds of issues, including uh, disease from mosquitoes, including poisonous snakes, and the big one being saltwater crocodiles. <laughs> but so many of the saltwater crocodiles that apparently soldiers were even getting attacked in their camps, 
uh, while crossing bogs and swamps and marshes. And pretty much every video had the same conclusion where they said the amount of people who died to this was a very muddled, you know, some were very high estimates, some were very low estimates, which is what leads you to believe that the number was greatly exaggerated the more the story went on. But basically to say that to try and escape, they went through a jungle full of crocodiles and pretty much a shit ton of them died. And eventually it ended with the Japanese bombing a U.S. warship, I believe, and used that as a distraction to get their remaining forces off the island, is what I understood. Not gonna lie, wasn't expecting a very thorough summarization. Pretty good, too. Was it? Do I get, like... No, it's, it's pretty, yeah, that's pretty much on par. Is that a B plus, or... B plus. From what that's most higher people... higher my high school average, folks, so we're happy. Because the general story, whenever it's told, is basically that. But uh, I did a, well, for those who didn't see the YouTube channel version of this, I did a little thorough investigation. There's actually been a lot of people who investigated this incident. And um, I'd say the evidence is pretty conclusive as to what actually happened. But before we get into that, we'll actually go into what actually happened. So it's 1945. This is the end of the war. Uh, something that's unique is this is the Burma front. So unlike most places in the Pacific War, the Japanese... Arguably, about 80% of the time, were winning every battle in Burma. They had ransacked everything. They pushed the British and the Indian forces back at the very onset of the Pacific War. And uh, the British, it took them a long time. Uh, there are Americans, too, involved in this, and Chinese. It took them a long time to eventually push back into a counterattack. But a lot of their efforts were unsuccessful. Uh, the Japanese really did dominate the Burma front. But by this point, it's pretty hopeless. It's 1945. So the 15th Indian Corps, they're performing a major offensive to push the Japanese out of the southern Burma front at this point. They've just captured Akya. And Major General Henry Chambers' 26th Indian Infantry Division is given the task of invading Ramri Island because it holds a small but always significant Japanese airfield. Something you always hear in the Pacific War is, you know, you're leapfrogging from airfield to airfield because you're trying to gain yep. air superiority. Yep. It's also a lot faster than sailing across, so... <laughs> yeah, especially. Uh, this is also the 15th Army, so it's notable to say this is the famous Forgotten Army of Lieutenant General William Slim. Uh, sorry, William Slim's Army is the 14th Army. I just made a mistake there. <laughs> the Forgotten Army of Lieutenant General William Slim's 14th Army was advancing through central Burma at this point, and, uh, you know, they had just gotten past the range of Allied airfields. So some of their airfields are in Impal and Argotala. So they needed to secure new airfields, and uh, Ramri was the key to this, to help out. So the 26th Indian Infantry Division, they're given orders to go and invade Ramri Island. And this is going to be on January the 14th. So D-Day was set for the 21st. <laughs> British intelligence indicated that the 2nd Battalion of the 121st Infantry Regiment of the 54th Division, led by one Colonel Kinichi Nagazawa, was garrisoning the island. He had just a few units of artillery, some engineer detachments. So this isn't a very significant force. Right? Yeah. Now I did, in one of the videos I watched, and this was where I got a little bit suspicious of the story because, you know, the, there are a lot of talks about how skilled the Japanese soldiers were during World War II. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this video was making them out to be like superhuman or some kind of crazy Shaolin monks. They're like, uh, uh, this video was saying they can survive off uh, four grains of rice in a day and... Uh, 
you know, they could take out 12 soldiers single-handedly with a freaking uh, a rock and a, it's a, yeah. a piece of bamboo. I mean, it was it was the most ridiculous storytelling, and I could tell it was a little bit over the top. But is that part of kind of what what made the Allies wait till the end of the war to take over these islands? Was it a little bit fear, a little bit of kind of war propaganda, or... Oh, uh, well, uh, actually... You know, had, it, that, had that myth or that story kind of risen that the Japanese soldiers were so like crazily strong or yes so what you're actually touching upon uh at the beginning of the war there was a lot of racist attitudes from the allies so we're talking the British and Americans mostly even Canadians surprise Uh, surprise a lot of racial attitudes about the Japanese and their ability to combat and fight and uh when the war did break out the oh just one second did I just unplug something I just noticed the plug was about to go out, and that could have been a catastrophe averted. Yeah. But uh, the Japanese had trained specifically for night fighting. Uh, they tried to train for jungle warfare, but they didn't have anything that was a suitable terrain to really give them a huge edge over the Allies. So no one really had an edge in jungle fighting. But the Japanese dominated in the first year of the war everywhere they went. So we're talking Malaysia, notably, uh, Burma was one of the greatest areas where they dominated and they got a tendency to be called superhumans. So like you said, all the tropes can survive on a few grains of rice, fight better in jungles, barely have any equipment. They're just living off the land, which is true by the end of the war. They are living off the land. But uh, the real reason why the allies couldn't really push back was uh, it's a resource allocation. It wasn't a significant front compared to other places. So Britain, Britain's fighting for its survival in Europe. For most of the war. As soon as that kind of tampers down, late 44, definitely 1945, the British can now actually go into the Pacific more, and that's why they're ramping up at this point. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, so the plan for the Ramry Island invasion, it's calling for an amphibious assault, and that's going to be against Kiapu. Hope I pronounced that one right. That's the northern point of the island, and it's also right next to its airfield. Intelligence showed that the Japanese had set up some artillery and cave defenses facing the beaches, which is pretty much the Japanese strategy going forward. Right. A British naval force with some RAF support would bombard the island prior to the landing uh, as the as amphibiously assault. So the HMS Queen Elizabeth, Kobe, B-24 Liberators, B-25 Mitchells, and some Republic P-47 Thunderbolts, they bombed and strafed all the Japanese positions and the forces landed on the beaches. Now, the landing went unopposed. The 4th Indian Infantry Brigade, led by Brigadier J.F.R. Foreman, made a beachhead. And the next day, they uh, took Kiapu. That would be like the town itself. They occupied it. And on the 23rd, the 71st Infantry Brigade began advancing south along the western coast, reaching Yanbuk, Chong, about the 26th. Now, they're clashing with forces of the 2nd Bataan, 121st Regiment. And after a few days of battle, the 71st Brigade, they're advancing further inland now towards the main town of Ramre. So that's yeah. more in the interior of this island. Right. While the 4th Brigade is holding down some Japanese forces at Yanbakchong. Now, the Japanese are putting up a resistance as best as they can. It's not a very large force, though. So they're, they're overwhelmed by numbers. They're overwhelmed by technology because they don't have air supremacy. They don't have... Naval vessels, they're really just a bunch of guys. This is the Battle of 300, but in World War II. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're completely outmatched, and they know it. There's also um, a Royal Marine force that invaded the nearby island of Chuduba, 
and they come over to Ramry because they don't find anybody on their island. So they easily occupy it and they just move over. And now they're outflanking the Japanese who are still at Yambakchong. There's about 900 or so, we don't know the numbers, but there's guesses, 900 surviving Japanese at Yambakchong. They abandon their positions and they decide that they're going to march across the interior of the island to join a larger force of Japanese. So they're trying to get out. Yep. Now, for those who maybe took the time to pull out a map, we're calling this an island, but you need to imagine it's very, very close to the mainland. What's separating it is, yes, an open body of water. So we're talking someone would probably have to swim, I guess, yeah, off the top of my head, an hour to get across or something like that. Like, it is a swim. But almost think of it like Louisiana swamplands. There's all sorts of little mound islands everywhere. Like This is kind of like an, an inlet, I guess they're called, amongst many others. So it's not like some island really far out in the ocean or anything. Mm. You actually, you can see the mainland. So they're going for the mainland. So if you picture them, they're on the left-hand side of this island. They're going to go to the right-hand side of the island, which is close yep. to the mainland. The Japanese, now they're going to march through the interior, which is mangrove swamplands, and it's about 10 miles to get to the other side. They're the only ones going in. Basically, the rest of the Allied forces, the uh, British Indian Army here, they're just going to surround them because all these people just went into a mangrove swamp. It's not somewhere you want to go. Nope. Now, the Allies encircle the area, and they effectively trap this fairly large force of Japanese inside, like Niger Man. To make matters worse, the 71st Indian Infantry Brigade reached the town of Ramri, and now they're clashing with some other units that were left there of the regiment. So those units are going to go jump into the swamp as well. Well, those who haven't been killed. Now, the Allies are just gradually pushing all these Japanese into the swampland, and now the only available routes of escape for these Japanese are kind of these, I guess you'd call them uh, little streams, little rivers that jut out of the yeah. interior. And uh, yeah, there's a, a blockade at this point. So they have smaller uh, vessels, like I guess you'd call them like PT boats and stuff, all going around. And they're basically at any entrance of a little mouth of a river or something that are going in here. They're, they're basically blockading it and they're going to shoot and kill any Japanese or you know try to get them to surrender if they see them running or swimming their way. Yeah, so essentially the Japanese have two options, which is either to face the Allied forces and die, or to go into the bug and critter infested swamp and hope not to die of some kind of disease. And the number one killer of people is by what? <laughs> Especially during war in the uh, Asia Pacific? Mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. Because they carry guns. They do. Malaria. Malaria is, uh, malaria, honestly, mosquitoes are underrepresented when you look at the death toll in humanity. Mosquitoes have probably killed, uh, they're one of the top ten. More people than crocodiles, I'd bet that. Yeah. By a lot. So back to these poor Japanese. There's Japanese on the mainland who know what's going on. And they're trying to save their comrades. So they're sending these smaller vessels to try and rescue these men. But there's an ongoing blockade and it's definitely completely unmatched. Like the, the British have better ships. They're going to shoot anything that comes near. It's February the 22nd. The blockade is finally lifted. And it's estimated that around 500 Japanese managed to get away. With only 14 men captured in all. So what happened to all those Japanese who never escaped the swamps? That's the question. Now, this is where we get into kind of the investigation. And 
I guess a look as to why do we have this myth or this story that kind of fascinated people ever since. And ironically, it's Canadian. That's uh, kind of the guy who perpetuated this. Really? So the most enduring account given about the fate of the Japanese comes from a Royal Canadian Lieutenant Commander named Bruce S. Wright. And I got one quote I'll read uh, from him. That night was the most horrible that any member of the motor launch crews ever experienced. The scattered rifle shots in the pitch black swamp punctured by the screams of wounded men crushed in the jaws of huge reptiles and the blurred whirring sounds of spinning crocodiles made a cacophony of hell that has rarely been duplicated on earth. At dawn, the vultures arrived to clean up what the crocodiles had left. Of about 1,000 Japanese soldiers that entered the swamps of Ramri, only about 20 were found alive. <laughs> so that's a hell of a quote, for sure. Yeah. I'll tell you, I did some advanced studies, and I have never heard the word cacophony before. Cacophony. Yeah, that one with a tongue twister, and I'm an idiot to... who can't pronounce anything. Yeah, but... Um... Yeah, that's definitely not a quote that would come from a soldier who was just at a battle. If something has ever been scripted in my life, I'm calling that right now. Well, Mr. Bruce was not, quote-unquote, a regular soldier. He was a Reuters war correspondent, and he was also the leader of a frogman unit. You know what a frogman is? Is that the frog legs with the man body or the exactly. frog body with the man legs? Which one is that? Take your pick. So a, a frogman was, uh, it's still today, I guess. Yeah, it exists. There's, uh, De Denmark has actually specialized frogman units. So they're amphibious men. So they're guys who are scuba gear, but they're, they're basically, they're sneaking into areas to scout out beaches to see like where we should land our forces, checking what the, what it, what's the approach like on the beach? Are there rocks? Is there going to be like coral reefs that are going to screw up the boats? That's kind of what they do. And he was performing a reconnaissance during this. But as a frogman, he wasn't actually with the troops. So he came in first. He spent hours documenting sea life because that was his passion on the side while he was doing this for the military. So he was studying things like sharks, octopus, octopi, octopuses. I, I actually don't know the plural of that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was studying octopus. And uh, yeah, after World War II, he became a famous wildlife biologist and an author. And the passage I just read that quote, uh, it comes from a 1962 book titled Wildlife Sketches Near and Far, and his story was picked up by a conservationist and a scientist named Roger Karras, who would write another famous book called Dangerous to Man in 1964. And this guy, Roger Karras, called the Ramry battle, quote, one of the most deliberate and wholesale attacks on man by large animals that is on record. So as you can imagine, this isn't the day of uh, the internet, yeah, I mean, on record is very, yeah, very broad in this sense. But you couple got, of, yeah. one guy said that a bunch of people died to crocodiles, and so you got a book comes out, and it's one of these wildlife books. So, yeah, you know, very popular. I mean, I remember even in the nineties getting these books. Like you know, you get like a monthly subscription to National Geographic. Yeah, exactly. These are really famous. So this was a big deal. And Kara stated later that he based his claims from his book off of Bruce and Bruce's account. Mm -hmm. The only major problem, like I said, is Bruce never saw any crocodiles, heard any people getting eaten by crocodiles. He was basing all of his claims from some boat crews that were blocking riverways. So we're already getting a broken telephone right now. Yeah, and boat crews saying 
And hang on. I just want to make sure I'm quoting this correctly. Pitch black swamp punctured by the screams of wounded men mm-hmm. and crushed in the jaws of... This is... Yeah. Like... It, it's very hyped. You can you can taste how it's dramatized and stuff. Yeah. Now, Bruce's role, like I said, at Ramray was pretty limited. He was performing a coastal dive. He was doing reconnaissance prior, prior to the invasion. And uh, he was, as he would quote, not in the thick of it. You know, so yep. he, he wasn't really there. Not really. So then I asked the question again, what really happened to these poor Japanese stuck in the swamps? Because there were Japanese stuck in swamps. Now, it's estimated of roughly 500 Japanese out of the original 1,000 were able to escape this kind of swamp hell in the interior. And this is backed up by Japanese military records. But that leaves another 500 Japanese unaccounted for. Now... In the 1990s, a British writer named Bill Potts interviewed British, Indian, Japanese, and even local Burmese about this event. Basically, after doing this, no one reported anything about crocodiles to him. Kind of a dead-end story. But in 2000, an American herpetologist named Stephen Platt, he went to Ramri as part of a National Geographic investigation into the actual myth and story, and he interviewed some Burmese historians and some local villagers from Ramrin. Some of the villagers had been conscripted by the Japanese as porters. So these are the guys that are kind of stuck carrying stuff for the army. So basically, you know, in in, uh, World War II in New Guinea, we would call them native carriers. You literally just pay them so that they carry your ammunition, whatever. Yeah. So these poor guys were kind of dragged into the swamps too. And uh, some of them would venture into the swamps with them. One of these guys gave an account in 2000. He said, Fresh water was unavailable and the soldiers were forced to drink brackish water, which resulted in severe dehydration, dysentery, and other diseases. Dysentery. Dysentery. Say again, I can't pronounce. And other diseases were rapid amongst the Japanese. And many succumbed to these privations. Yeah, well, a lot of the time, especially in older conflicts, any soldier that was stuck in any kind of wilderness or whatever just didn't have access to fresh food, fresh water. This is like one of the most common ways people die. If it's not starvation, it's actually disease from drinking seawater, swamp water, uh, things like that. I mean, dysentery in general has claimed countless human lives ongoing to ancient times. It's one of the ancient killers. It may have killed Alexander the Great. No one knows for sure what got him. I still think it was alcoholism, but it's possible. So, I mean, I don't know if it's dysentery per se, but I've had Taco Bell a few times and I survived, so that's... Um, <laughs> Taco Bell is comparable. It's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. But to be honest, the other thing that concerned me about these stories, and don't get me wrong, I am far and away from a wildlife expert, especially this kind of wildlife that we don't have in Canada. But one of the biggest things in most of the YouTube videos and accounts that I've heard is they were saying, you know, it wasn't just the soldiers going into the swamps. Because obviously we've all seen videos of the Nile River or whatever, saltwater crocodiles. Yeah. Obviously if a thousand soldiers all tried to cross the Nile at the same time and start stirring up all the water, well, a bunch of crocodiles would have a feast and maybe pick off a bunch of them. That makes sense. Yeah. But most of the accounts I saw were also saying that when the soldiers would make camp at night, 
And yes, they'd have a few patrols or guards or whatever you call it. But they would say that the crocodiles would go into these camps and ambush the soldiers oh, and drag them off. I'm 90% sure crocodiles don't walk on dry land and full-on chase down prey. Although they're, they're pretty fast. I've seen videos. No, no, they, they are run. fast on land, but they're like 90% ambush hunters. Of course, they hunt at night mostly. Yes, but even at night, I don't think they walk along the riverbanks and try to catch a buffalo, you know? They, yeah. they sit in the water, they wait for something to come by, and then snap, thank you very much. So to say that crocodiles, you know, maybe one, but to say that crocodiles en masse were walking into camps like some kind of horror movie and just attacking people. And, you know, some of these people who perpetuate this myth say a thousand Japanese were killed by crocodiles. How many, we'll get to it, but how many crocodiles would there be to kill that kind of number? It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and let's also say the other thing. Yes, crocodiles are fast on land, but these are still Japanese soldiers with guns yes. and with bayonets. Yeah. So if you see a crocodile coming at you on dry land and you see it, well, I'm sorry, but they're still going to shoot it in the face before they get bit. Oh, they would probably start throwing grenades. and I mean, just f fire in general and running up, well, going up trees would somewhat protect you. Although, I'll get into something later. Apparently, I'm not going to say crocodiles can climb up trees, but kind of. A little bit. Well, I don't know, but I, I can definitely understand why people say this is a load of horse shit. But. Uh, so, according to, you know, that testimony in 2000... More, a few of the villagers, they just went on to say that the majority of the Japanese, they died from dehydration, exposure, lack of food, malaria, and, and other diseases, which is much what you would expect in the circumstance. Yeah. But again, we get, you know, that quote, these horrifying sounds, these boat crews are saying like, you know, they heard all these guys like dying and stuff. According to British military records, hundreds of Japanese soldiers were seen making Daring escapes by swimming across the channel separating Ramri from the mainland of Burma. Now, this is reality. While the blockading boats were patrolling at night, looking at the, you know, all these hundreds of Japanese trying to swim for their lives, they were also you know, firing upon the, the smaller crafts coming from the mainland to try and rescue the Japanese. Uh, according to a military report, this is another quote, Except for a few swimmers, it's doubtful that any survived the crossing. It's estimated that at least 100 Japanese were killed or drowned that night. 200 killed is regarded as a conservative estimate. About 40 loaded boats were known to have sunk. Possibly another 50 Japanese died in the mangrove from exposure and want of food and water. 14 prisoners were taken. Now, again, where are the crocodiles in the, you know, these testimonies, right? Basically, when I was doing more research, I looked for any accounts, and there's two accounts of crocodile attacks. One came from a local villager that Stephen Platt had interviewed, and he claimed that 10 to 15 Japanese were attacked by crocodiles while fording the Minchang, which is a tidal creek near the uh, town of Ramre. There was also an account given by Bruce that two of his frogmen were forced to abandon their paddleboards and frantically climb up a mangrove tree to avoid a very large crocodile. Up in the tree, Bruce said that they said, quote, they heard shouting and rifle fire during the night from the allied position, from their allied position, that is. Vultures often appeared over areas where the British forces had never reached. So this is where the Japanese are. 
The Japanese did not die from crocodiles alone, but from thirst and wounds. So again, nothing really to signify there's large-scale crocodile attacks. But going back to the point about those Japanese swimming for their lives across the channel, Lieutenant General Slim had recounted in his memoirs that a large number of Japanese were falling victim to shark attacks while trying to do that channel swim, because it was at night. And a lot of the British boat crews were actually trying to save them. Uh, others were shooting at them because this was a brutal, brutal war and uh, there was a lot of brutality. But we definitely do have accounts uh, that the Japanese were getting eaten alive by sharks. That did happen. Which never seems to make it in this story. I find it interesting because it's like, a, it's, a, it's a combo. You got sharks and crocodiles. Well, you of all people have a personal bias towards shark attacks. No, we're not getting that. For anybody who hasn't gotten into that, you can go see the last episode we did with our friend Ian and we'll explain that story. Oh, It's yeah. a good one. Well, for but, audio listeners, they actually would get that one because that did show up on the Podbean. It might go on the YouTube channel. We'll see in the future. But yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, obviously logic would dictate that it was just a whole bunch of circumstances leading to everybody dying from everything, from disease to dysentery to starvation... Yeah, maybe a couple of them did get eaten by crocodiles. Oh, yeah. You know, sharks, whatever it was. I do think, and I will say this, if there is a natural population of crocodiles, I wouldn't be opposed to saying that a bunch of them that had died of other causes had maybe got eaten by crocodiles. Oh, for sure. Which is very possible. Yeah. Because, you know, if there's a fresh meal sitting there by the riverbank, a crocodile's not going to say no to it. Just like wolves during World War One. Exactly. So... That would make a little bit of sense, but I don't know. And uh, so actually that goes right to your point. You know, they wait a few days after they've been encircling this area, but they got to perform mop-up operations, see what's going down. So when they were performing the mop-up operations, just as you said, what do you think they saw? A lot of them saw crocodiles eating dead Japanese. Now, by a lot, it was probably just a few, but still. If guys saw this, this would be something you'd probably tell your buddies or tell people back home. It's not mm -hmm. every day you, you see such a thing. But as pointed out by Frank Minlan in his History of the Burma Campaign, these claims that hundreds of Japanese being eaten by crocodiles, quote, if thousands of crocodiles were involved in the massacre, how are these raving monsters surviving before and how are they able to survive later? Ramri Island is very small. It could not support, unless I guess it's some kind of wild mating season and all crocs come at once for, you know, to get it on and leave. This island could not support that number of crocodiles. So again, that goes against the point of we don't think that hundreds, let alone a thousand guys were eaten by crocodiles. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I mean, again, far and away from a wildlife expert and anybody, please correct me, but I'm not saying that crocodiles are cannibalistic, but I don't think any of them have been opposed to eating their own kind if they either well, die of natural causes or if they do that. So it would kind of make sense that, you know, a bunch of crocodiles go, maybe a few less come out, but with mating and whatnot, then it kind of keeps a steady population. I don't know. I have seen videos. I don't know if it's Ramry Island, but there is an island off Burma where saltwater crocodiles go to mate. And yes, it does seem to appear like maybe hundreds, if not a thousand crocodiles do venture onto these beaches to, to perform that mating ritual. But uh, it just, it doesn't seem to be the case during this. 
overall, through my little investigation, it's a tall tale. And uh, it was started by probably just one guy saw something, said something, and it got out of hand. And uh, it's persisted ever since. And to this day, uh, some of the biggest history YouTubers, not going to name names, made episodes on this myth, completely taking it at face value. And it's not the first time I've caught them doing such things. Yeah. And I mean, look, speaking again to the number of crocodiles, because there were, in the videos I saw, a lot of reports of how the crocodile population on Ramry Island significantly decreased yes. after the war. Although most accounts attributed that to some kind of poacher wave that came through, which I don't know. And again, I, well, yeah, I guess people would poach crocodiles for their skin, leather, but. Yeah, of course. But it's, uh, you know, to say that during this event there was a shit ton of crocodiles and after this event, well, all of a sudden there are no more crocodiles. Mm. Uh, I'm feeling just something that was greatly exaggerated. And like I said, I think. A lot of people died of other causes. Again, combat wounds, disease, mosquitoes, food, water, whatever it may be. And maybe a bunch of people just caught them getting eaten by crocodiles and said, well, crocodiles must kill them. Which... Yeah. And I know it's anticlimactic and it's a little disappointing, I guess, because it's, it's such a good story. And it's wild. I mean, people who've heard of it, it's pretty fascinating, this idea that you have a retreating force of a thousand Japanese just unbelievably getting massacred by crocodiles and i'm as guilty as anybody when i made the episode on youtube i tried to even make some ai art you know showing japanese fighting off crocs it's uh it would be an interesting video uh and a single movie has been made about this event and it's i'm sorry australia it's a terrible movie some australians made it it barely involves any crocodiles it's more about just three guys who i don't know why the story revolves around Australian soldiers and not Japanese. Uh, you you see one Japanese guy get attacked by a crocodile, and then the rest of the movie is just uh, an Indian, I think maybe one British guy and one Australian soldier, and then they get attacked repeatedly by a crocodile. Kind of, it's such a lackluster movie. To be fair, I think Craig's confusing a movie with a few episodes of The Crocodile Hunter because he pretty <laughs> much described the show perfectly. Yeah. It's a bunch of different people who work at a zoo getting attacked by crocodiles, so. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know where the sources of this come from. And obviously, if it's especially now a story that's in contention for legitimacy or not, I can see why they wouldn't put major production into making movies about this. Although you could make a straight fiction about this and make it some crazy Stephen King horror thing. but Well, I mean, as we're seeing today... Uh... Anytime, anytime they make an historical film, people poke holes at it and they go after the historical accuracy. But I'm, a, I'm the like-minded person who's like, you have to balance entertainment with history. And if you're making a movie, it's not like you're making a documentary. If it's a film, it's a film. And uh, if they did one, I mean, go, go hog wild on it. Do the thousand Japanese. Make CGI crocodiles come after them. Have the Japanese perform a bonsai charge against them. Why not? I mean, at this point, if they have sharks and tornadoes and they have... Uh, oh, they did have that movie a few years ago where there was like a mass flood or a monsoon and it brought oh, yeah. crocodiles into... Uh, Florida. Yeah, something oh, like it that. It must be an alligator, right? It has to be an alligator. Oh, it's Florida. I don't know. Well, anyways, but yeah, it's a crawl space. Crawl? I, I think it was titled Crawl. And she's underneath her house and there's like a large... Allig I guess it's an alligator. 
and it just goes to town on her and I think it's her father or something. I, I don't know. I saw the previews from it and I was like, yeah, this is dumb, but... But the all-time classic is Lake Placid. Let's agree. Lake Placid was pretty awesome back in the day. The first one, not the no, 14 no, editions no. that followed, but... No, uh, classic with Betty White feeding the crocodiles. <laughs> yeah, sticking her toes in the water. Oh my god, I remember that. Oh my god, Betty That's, White was a prize for that one. The, the golden treasure will definitely be missed, but... Uh, yeah. If she was still alive, do you think they could cast her as one of the Japanese soldiers that was escaping? Oh, she'd do it, probably. That 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 would make a fantastic movie. I mean, she was a trooper to the very end. Yep, 100%. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Definitely sounds very, very far-fetched. But, uh... It's one of many myths about World War II. Actually, have, I'm actually curious. Have you ever heard any, uh... Legends or myths involving World War Two? I mean, we've definitely talked about the superhuman Japanese soldiers before. Hmm. Other than that, I'm thinking legends or myths. Here, here's Let's... one. Uh, not knowing if you'd ever heard this, but this one has such a profound effect. Most people to this day kind of know it for some reason. Have you ever heard anything about the Polish using cavalry to attack tanks? No. Okay, sorry. And anybody who's kind of like a World War II nut, they would have, you probably would have came across, this is one of the biggest myths that's ever been perpetuated. It was an event in which um, the Polish were, were invaded by Nazi Germany. And right. uh, the Polish, like every single modern military at the time, had cavalry units that included horses and you know, riding. And the Nazis actually perpetuated this idea that the Polish had basically charged an entire panzer division with um with horses with horses never happened what actually did happen is the polish uh, cavalry unit in question had attacked the supply line and a mundane thing nothing to make any note of and uh, the germans just for propaganda's sake they wanted to make the poles look stupid and something and i think actually to this day it perpetuates that stereotype of the dumb pole you know character there but yeah, it's it's completely false, and uh, there's even a famous photo that is used. I think he, if you Wikipedia something like it, you, you keep seeing this photo of this like Polish cavalry charge during World War II, and they always assert that that was the moment it happened. It didn't happen. There's a, there's a lot of bizarre myths in World War II. I don't know about myths. I mean, if you look back at a lot of the, not just superhero movies, but a lot of the modern movies that are set in like. A Nazi era, mm -hmm. a lot of them allude to like the Nazis being really into like all kinds of science and all kinds yeah, of cult. Like, yeah. Well, they they they're like um, Himmler. Himmler was a big believer in very weird occult stuff, and um, the Nazis under uh, Hitler as well. Uh, they dedicate some some funds to researching all sorts of bizarre things. Um, have you ever heard of the Lance of Longinus? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, the, the idea that Hitler was looking for this item, um, there's a lot of credible evidence that uh, money was put forward to try and get it because there was a myth that whoever, I think it's whoever holds the lance, they will win every battle. And there was this evidence that throughout all of history, people who had held this had won, but the moment they had lost it for some unforeseen reason, then they would lose. And uh, apparently, there, I, mean, I remember reading this, there was this myth that Hitler got his hands on it. And the, the tale is 
that all the battles that Nazis won at the early part of the war could be contributed to this, attributed to this, but then he lost it. And the Americans took it at the end. And now America has been the global dominant power in the world. There, there's a dumb, you know, it's conspiracy bullshit, but yeah. silly stuff. Come to think of it, being the superhero movie nerd that I am, didn't they allude to that in the first Hellboy movie? Oh my god, I'm trying to remember that movie. I mean... They called it the Spear of Longinus, and it was... Uh, was said, that in it? With Hellboy? And it was said to be... That was like the spear that pierced the side of Jesus Christ. Yes, exactly. And they they said it wasn't winning every battle. They said something about it making the person immortal. But yeah, yeah. that was alluded to in the first Hellboy movie, come to think of it. And but again, that's, you know, when you get to the Marvel movies, it's a little bullshit. But even when you got into, I'm trying to remember if they had something about it in Schindler's List. But a lot Schindler's of, List? Really? Uh, it, it was like a very passing on. Uh, see, I haven't seen that movie in like 10 years. That that wasn't like a big thing. That was just like a passing remark, something about the oh, Nazi R&D into something. But there, there's been a lot of allusions to it, and I don't know how serious it was or how, you know. Oh, the, but, but I can see that as being something that would get blown out of proportion. Like, oh, Hitler has the spear, he's immortal, and he can't oh, lose a battle. When, when it comes to this, you have, conspir- you you have, have conspiracy theories about the uh, Nazi programs that would lead them to do these expeditions to Antarctica, where they have a secret base. And actually, they had finished rocket programs, and they got to the moon. And there's all sorts of, you know, crazy stuff. Although, there is interesting projects that Nazis uh, did put forward to try and design kind kind of things you would think would be spaceships. Um, there was a... I, I can't remember what the name of the project was. It was kind of like the Flying Bell or something. It looked basically like your idea of a flying saucer. And I mean, the Nazis did have the forefront in rocket technology, so... It, it's, it's perpetuated a lot of weird ideas. And then, you know, you combine that with the kooky occult stuff, which... Uh, it's a perfect recipe for weird movies and such. Yeah. Yeah, but not just movies. Like I said, propaganda. Yep. Because, you know, as much as there's occult believers on that side, there's for sure some of them on this side of the fence, too, who are, of course, maybe they won't be respected or listened to as much, but they're obviously going to go around freaking out saying, you know, yeah. this is what the Nazis are looking into, and uh, whether it's spiritual, whether it's religious, whether it's mythical, whatever branch you want to put it in. I think the one of the silliest things before the war and even during the war, Hitler and and Himmler, because uh, these are two competing guys in the field of doing these weird projects. Uh, Hitler was obsessed with trying to find evidence of a lot of the theories on the Aryan race, things that he completely fabricated, made up in his head. By the way, which is funny that he makes this stuff up and he, he just tells people to go research it. And they would go across the world to you know archaeology, Indiana Jones, all the Indiana Jones movies show this aspect of it where they're, they're looking for this archaeology kind of research into all this and i'm sure it's very frustrating for the nazis to find the evidence that is contrary to their views and such but yeah, yeah but at the same time when you're when you're not just being paid but when you're such a big part of the nazi regime and that's a big scientific problem in general is finding uh finding facts to meet your conclusions rather than finding conclusions to meet your facts yeah the self-fulfilling prophecy if you're going to look for something then you're going to find it eventually in some form or, or you'll find some weird backwards explanation for it that yeah. kind of makes it make sense yeah so, you well know, people people died in the jungle and one of them got eaten by a crocodile well i'm, I'm sure i'm sure somebody got eaten by a crocodile because there has 100%. to be 
There has to be a patient zero. You know what? There, there's one stupid idiot that went to fill his canteen in the river where everybody else said, don't go near that river. And <laughs> sure enough, chomp and goodbye. So the movie, because I, I made, again, I'll, I'll tell the audience, I made a YouTube episode on this. If you want to watch it, I use clips from this. I called it a very bad movie. But the one scene, you see a Japanese guy get attacked by a crocodile. Cliche. He's trying to light a cigarette. He drops his matches in the water. So he starts waddling at the water with his hand to try to get the matches, which is like, I, I don't know why, just don't grab it. And then, boom, the crocodile gets him and he's screaming. And yeah, I mean, that's how they start the film. And then, then you get an hour long of just, oh, crikey, uh, he's, got, he's got him, oh no. And there's just three guys just jerking each other <laughs> off. It's a very boring movie. I'm sorry, I was so disappointed. I thought I was going to see really corny CGI crocs attacking Japanese, and I didn't get that. So I was a little salty. Like a saltwater <laughs> crocodile. Oh, uh, yeah. We can end it on that terrible dad pun note. <sighs> Thank you, Justin, for joining me on this silly investigation. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. I mean, uh, I always enjoy this stuff. Definitely to all of our audio listeners, I want to wish a, a happy holidays coming up. Oh, or, yeah. or to whatever, if you celebrate the holidays or not. But, uh, you know, world's been tough for a few years. It's nice if you can get together with family or friends or hang out or have a good time. So wishing you all the best and hopefully uh, you're enjoying the, the little content that we're putting out. Times are tough, but did you know that I have a Patreon account, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where I have exclusive podcasts. Uh, last month's podcast over there was me answering the question, why did the Japanese perform so many atrocities during World War II? And that one was really in-depth and quite graphic. So if that's your type of stuff, well, go check it out. And actually, I'll let everyone know right here, you can go over to the Patreon and you can get a free trial. So you can just mug me for a month and walk away if you want. Go ahead and do it. And uh, tell anyone for Christmas if they like history content. I think it's, uh, I, I make a lot of content. You get about two podcasts a month. And I do live hangouts and other things with Justin here and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun. Yep. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, this has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>